Welcome back to the University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilcox, Communications Generalist here at U of M Extension. In this episode, we're talking about biostimulants. We have three members of Extension's Nutrient Management team here with us today. Can you each give us a quick introduction? My name is Daniel Kaiser. I'm a nutrient management specialist on the St. Paul campus. One area that I do a lot is on product testing, and I work with the NCERA 103 group, which is the regional group that has put together the compendium of non-traditional products for those that might be interested in, if you're looking at um, what's been tested in the past or specific products, um, there's a website that uh, you can go to that has some more up-to-date research on some of the products that have been tested. So it's been one of the things that I've been interested in because we get a, I get a lot of questions in my extension role on a lot of these products. Hi, I'm Carl Rosen, and I'm a extension specialist, and my area of expertise is nutrient management. And I've also worked with NCRO 103, the uh, uh, alternative or non-traditional products. And uh, also, I encourage you to uh, take a look at the website and look at some of the uh, research that's been done on some of these alternative products. And I'm Lindsay Pease, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Soil, Water, and Climate up at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center. And I have a few experiments out right now that are looking at the impact of biologicals on some soil fertility. Thank you so much. Let's get into the first question. What's new on the topic of biostimulants? Well, you know, Jack, it's interesting when you look at the market right now, uh, particularly uh, the interest in biological products. I mean, they've been around for a long time. Um, I mean, certainly if you look at some of the seed treatments that have been going on the seed already for what, some of your corn treatments, they may include some biological products. And, you know, we're looking at it, it's right now, I think the key expansion is in some of these, what we call free living nitrogen fixers. Um, so, in the area of sustainability, a lot of people are, have a lot of interest really in looking at ways to reduce the amount of nitrogen um, that they need to apply with fertilizer and try to come up with some other, what we deem more sustainable practice. So that's been the big thing. Um, there's a, you know, a few key ones um, proven from Pivot Bio is probably the biggest one. If you look at from a marketing standpoint right now, that's a free living end fixer. Um, one of the other products, Utricia, uh, and there's one other one that always escapes my mind. That's get we get a lot of questions on right now that are really big in the marketplace. And with the fertilizer prices the way they are, I mean, certainly growers have been looking for a way to really look at reducing the amount they need to apply, or you know, so they're looking for that that general option that might be a cheaper option. Although you look at all these products. They still aren't free. So if you look at the price you're paying for them, you could be paying essentially about two thirds the price you would be for fertilizer for one of these products. So you really need to make sure they work. And that's been kind of the questions that we've had, which we'll talk about research here, I think in a little bit, is from a lot of growers is do, do they work? And you, you see a lot of reports from, you know, particularly in the popular press on growers that have been using some of these things. And it's been one of the, the things I've really been kind of on my end, a, more of a cautionary tale really to read into a lot of what's what's going on, because certainly the marketing arm there is really pushing a lot of these positive effects. So you need to have a general idea and where these things are going to work best because they're not a, a definite thing to use. So that's one of the things that I guess concerns me right now with it. Um, and we've seen this in the past 
with a lot of products is they tend to come and go um, where they'll get a lot of interest. Um, and if growers aren't seeing the consistent benefit from them, they tend to start to, to fade over time. So we'll kind of see what happens here because the sustainability piece is huge. And I know growers are really looking at you know more ways um, to the sustainability piece as well as um, a lot of industry too, um, really to start looking at reducing some of the nitrogen they need. Yeah, I think Dan, the one product you were thinking of, but couldn't remember the name is Envita. And uh, that's the one that um, was uh, originally isolated from sugarcane. And it does, um, it does fix nitrogen, it's an endophyte. So it uh, works within the plant, but it's different than rhizobium where there's a very mutual um, uh, association with legumes. Uh, this is uh, th this this endophyte is not as specific and can also infect corn and perhaps other uh, crops as well. But it it is supposed to fix nitrogens uh, similar to some of the other products on the mar market. Yeah, and I think Utricia may be the one that's foliar applied. Um, I haven't had as much experience with some of these products. Um, you know, the the thing about a lot of these these products that are out there right now is that they're, they work outside of the plant. So when you start looking at situations like rhizobium that are nodule, the nodules and legume crops, um, that's more of a symbiotic relationship where the plant supplies the food for the bacteria, then the bacteria in turn supply nitrogen directly to the plant. So, you know, with a lot of these products that are out there, they're going to be free living. And, you know, ideally what's going to happen is the some exodus from the roots that the plants are going to release are going to supply food to that bacteria where they in turn would supply some nitrogen. So that's one of the, um, the things that are the big question right now with this, because if you look at a lot of our soils, I mean, I think certainly if you're looking at a lot of these products in a situation where we didn't have a lot of biological activity, I think, I think it'd be more clear cut where there might be a benefit from these, especially if you could get something that would colonize to do what it says it's supposed to do. Uh, the main thing though, when I look at these, is it's interesting because uh, one question that on one of our last, um, I don't think it was a podcast, it was one a particular article we had released in one of our crappy news blogs, somebody had made the comment that uh, with these biologicals, you know, you know, it didn't really get to a point at which we don't need to apply any fertilizer. And I don't think that's the case. And, and you know, the research really isn't there right now with that, that we can completely get rid of all of our fertilizer applications. I mean, they might supply a small amount of what the crop needs, but there's really nothing out there that's gonna completely unlock essentially what, what the nutrients in the soil and make everything completely available where we won't, we won't be able to apply or raise a, a full crop without fertilizer application. Yeah, and we're, we're mainly talking about non-legumes, of course. So um, yeah, the, these free-living nitrogen fixers and even the endophytes that are nitrogen fixers cannot supply all the nitrogen that's needed by the crop, no matter how good they might be. So um, yeah, you're, you're always gonna have to try to apply some, or need to apply some nitrogen. And one of the problems is that when you apply nitrogen, at least for most of the microbes, uh, adding that nitrogen will suppress that nitrogen fixing ability. And that's the one thing about the uh, proven product that, that's been genetically modified to, uh, be able to withstand higher amounts of fertilizer nitrogen so it doesn't shut down the nitrogen fixation process. At least that is the, that's the, uh, the idea behind that one. 
And so with a lot of these too, I mean, it's amazing to me how many are actually out there. Um, you know, we can't possibly test them all. And that's one of the things, if you are looking for information, I mean, if you know what's actually, or what strains of bacteria are in these things that you could go and do some search for some older research to look at some of this specific, again, a lot of this isn't new. I mean, obviously though, there's a lot of strains of these bacteria out there and you know, that was one of the points that was brought up uh, recently when we were talking about some of these things at the crop pest management short course in December of uh, 2022 is that uh, one person brought that up. I mean, in terms of the, what strains were being tested and a bunch of interactions. And the thing is, this isn't a simple, you know, simple issue when you start looking at these. I mean, it seems like more and more we're isolating strains, throwing them in a jug and selling them to growers. But, you know, the survivability, I think, is the main question on a lot of this. And I don't really know what's going to really what what's going to happen when those those organisms hit the soil. Are they going to survive or not and do what they say they're going to supposed to do? You know, there's a lot of competition out there. Um, when you think about just a gram of soil, how many microbes are in one gram? And when you uh, spray a, a couple gallons over a whole acre, um, the ability of that strain or strains that might be applied to compete with what is existing in the soil can be quite difficult. And so you might get maybe uh, an effect very early on, but then those strains are, are overcome by the native bacteria or native fungi with other microbes that are in the soil. Yeah, and I think, you know, kind of to to both of those points, uh, Dan and I heard you mention this too, and, and I actually had somebody else mention it to me later on. I mean, the number of new products that are being registered, you know, at Minnesota Department of Agriculture in particular is just going up and up. Um, so it's really hard to keep you know, keep in on top of all of the different products that are being released. And so, you know, I think that's where I try to understand these mechanisms, of how they're supposed to work is, is maybe one good way of trying to filter through, you know, what, whether or not these products might, might work, or if, if a similar mode of action has been successful in the past. What new research can you talk about related to biostimulants? Well, I think, you know, one of the projects we, I actually have a couple product projects going on right now where we are testing some of these products. One of them is in conjunction with uh, Dr. Paolo Pagliari, who's out of the Southwest Research and Outreach Center. So he's my counterpart in the Southwest corner of Minnesota. We are looking at a specific strain of azospirillium uh, to be able to kind of do that nitrogen fixing uh Nit fix nitrogen from the atmosphere and into the soil uh, for the non-legume crops. We are testing it in wheat, um, but I will say that, you know, we've got mixed results the last couple of years. We really aren't seeing a real consistent response to that. And I think some of that could be the survivability question that, that Carl just mentioned. Actually, we sent some microbial sam samples to another one of the faculty members in our department, uh, Dr. Satoshi Ishii, and he looked for that particular species in midsummer and couldn't find it in the samples that we sent. So, um, so I think this summer we had some survivability issues. Um, but we also had a drought, you know, and so we were really short on rain, uh, both in Lamberton and in Crookston. So it's really, I think that's one of the things that makes it kind of hard to 
weigh in on whether these products are working as intended. Where we did see a response, um, we did see that the, the, the bacteria could fix about 15% more nitrogen um, to the plant, but really the most consistent place we saw a response was where there was no nitrate added, um, which is obviously not a very realistic scenario. Um, we do have another product that is part of a trial that we're looking at. It's another one of those foliar sprays. The data is not fully analyzed on that either. You know, the foliar spray is meant to stimulate the microbial community, uh, but just looking at test weight on soybeans, we didn't see any response this past summer uh, of that product either. Yeah, and so a lot of these products, um, when they're being developed, they uh, isolate the bacteria, maybe some from some the rhizosphere of high yielding uh, crops, uh, corn maybe or wheat. And then they take those microbes and culture them and they <clears throat> get uh, very pure cultures. And then you can then inoculate your, uh, the crop and that you're, that, that's of interest, say corn. But um, a lot of times the uh, initial results are uh, based on greenhouse studies where you have ideal conditions, you have the, the moisture that you need to encourage growth. And there you can see some potentially some some results, but then when you take it out to the field, as Lindsay just said, that can be a whole different question. Uh, it depends on the environment, the uh, the rainfall, the weather conditions at the time. There's so many interactions that can that can occur. Yeah, and it's interesting to me is you kind of look at. I mean, I've been here in Minnesota since 2008, and when I came in first, you know, the big question right that in that point was solubilizing phosphorus. So they were looking at uh, Jumpstart, which is uh, active ingredients, penicillium villi, which is a, um, fun this is a fungus that's supposed to colonize around the roots and acidify the area around the roots to try to release phosphorus, um, ideally in a high pH environment. Um, you look at where that it product is now, I don't hear a lot about it. I think it's probably still around. I mean, penicillium villi, if you go into the compendium of non-traditional products, you'll find research from that probably from 30 years ago where they were looking at that. So the concept, I mean, it's interesting. If you look at a lot of the concepts on these products, I mean, there is some scientific merit in it. It's just whether or not it translates well to a larger area. Like Carl said, you test something in the lab, you might be able to find that circumstance where it works very well. But you know, in the field, when you're dealing with um, billions of microbes in such a small area um, that's that's in the soil, it's it's can what you're applying that little amount you have overtake the natural biology that's within the soil. So again, I started. We tested that. So we, we were testing a veil at that point in time, which isn't a biological product. Um, I tested uh, Soil Builder AF, and, uh, which is also accomplished LM, which is a manure tea, um, which is supposed to stimulate microbial activity, increase nutrient uptake. And now I've kind of moved towards um, where we're doing some testing with some of these nitrogen enhancers. And the big thing I can say on these things is they aren't consistent. Um, I think the um, Soil Builder AF, when we looked at testing, I had 11 or 12 sites, uh, one of which we saw a response. Two, and then with this, uh, the Pivot Bio product, it's been one out of six, which would say, well, 17% of the time I saw a response. But the thing or the challenge about testing a lot of these products is you could catch lightning in a bottle and you hit just that exact one site where you see a response and, you know, you could test it a hundred more times and never see anything occur again. So that's, 
the the thing that I think you look at these things, there's some promise in them. Um, but, you know, looking at taking that to the field, it isn't always definitive. And that's kind of, you know, talking about a lot of these things. I talked to a lot of consultants that have done a lot of testing too, and they see a lot of the same things. And that's, you know, I think the challenge for these products, while I think there'd be some value if you could get them to consistently work, it's getting them to consistently work is the issue. And just packaging something and throwing it in a bottle really, you know, and selling it, it just, there, I think there's a lot of issues there with that uh, because you look at it, it's just more than just, you know, putting this stuff on because, you know, you're always the question is, did you put on enough? Because, you know, maybe you put on enough in a setting you could get it to work, but is that economical where a farmer is going to pay for that? I mean, that's always the question. And then, um, you know, I go back to, it gets into the soil. Will it have the desired impact? Because that's been the main thing. Is I'd like to see consistency. And that's kind of the thing that, you know, I really you have to ask growers is how much consistency do you want to see in a product to make it worth your while to look at it? What percentage of the time does it need to work? And then what evidence do you need that that product works to make you make that decision that it's something to try? I mean, that's kind of the, the big thing is they've seen all sorts of things right now claimed on these products and how they work, when in the end, most growers are really interested in yield. And that's kind of the challenge. I mean, you can kind of prove where maybe it takes up some nitrogen early in the growing season, but if it doesn't give you that benefit where I can reduce my nitrogen rate and get the same yield, then does it really matter? So that's, you know, kind of the, the challenge with a lot of these things is it's, um, it's, you know, what's your definition of works? You know, what, what do you need to know to, to prove it works to really to, to give you that evidence that this should be something you should try? The, the other thing is the application and how you apply it. Sometimes they recommend uh, applying it with, say, a starter fertilizer, and you wonder whether uh, a microbe can actually withstand the, the uh, concentration of fertilizer that might be there. So some companies have tested that. They claim that it, the, the microbes can, but I think you need to be a little bit careful about uh, mixing it with a concentrated uh, fertilizer. And who has starter? I mean, that's the problem. You know, Carl, you look at, you deal a lot with sands. We know that starter is a big risk in sands. And mm -hmm. as growers have gotten bigger, I mean, that's the problem with inferral. I mean, I do research on it, but you still see it in, say, western Minnesota because of the high pH soils. I mean, growers like a little bit of phosphorus right ahead of the corn, which is, I think, a good option. But in other areas of the state, there isn't that that option. So that's the challenge really is can you apply it the way it needs to be applied and i know some of these companies are working especially the pivot bio product to come on a seed placement which would you know expand out the acreage where it could be applied which is really what they need to be looking at doing because you know we look a lot at inferral but that option just isn't always there yeah right and they also talk about uh mixing it with certain pH in the water, if it's too high or too low. So if you can do a seed placement, that's good. But you also have to remember that there's fungicides uh, applied with seed placement, and you wonder how that might affect some of the microbes as well. If a farmer wants to test biostimulants, how would you go about it? Well, I think you want to make sure that you have the, the, the right comparisons. You don't want to be testing a product one year and then comparing it with what you did the previous year or the next year. So you want to make sure that you test it the same year um, with a control, uh, control meeting your normal practice without the product. And ideally, you would like to um, have replication in your field. 
where you apply it. So um, you're, you're not just looking at, say, one portion of the field relative to another portion field, but you actually have uh, strips in there where you can say this has it and the other uh, area does not have the product. So you can have side-by-side -side comparisons, but replicated at least three times. I, I think that that's the best way to, uh, to to be sure that you're going to see a response. And then when you when you do that, you you look at the yields, you look at say the nitrogen content in those areas where you have it, and then compare it with the areas that you don't have. So for us, I mean, it's it's easy with our small plot research because I can take eight nitrogen rates, I can put the product to do with and without the product. And we can make that comparison. It's not something a grower can do. Um, the other thing that's nice for me is I can screw up because, I mean, I'm not at big of a risk for loss that a, a grower would be should you buy something or should you underapply your nitrogen and reduce yield. So, you know, that's ideal. We're in a situation, um, some of the work we were doing with, with Proven, we had eight nitrogen rates, I had five to six replications. And that's some pretty powerful data when you can get that back and, and look at that. Now, what I really suggest to growers is exactly what Carl said, is you've got to have a comparison with and without at the same nitrogen rate. Now, I've seen some protocols pushed for testing these products where you take the standard rate compared to the standard rate, maybe minus 30 or 40 pounds with the product, and then make that comparison. And I think for most growers, you get the same yield, they consider that a win. Well, the problem is a lot of that if you start looking at from a company perspective, it works really well for them because if the grower is already over applying by 30 to 40 pounds, maybe they could have just reduced the rate anyway. So it's really what I've been stressing to growers when you're testing these things. If you're going to do that reduced rate with the product, make sure you have that reduced rate without because now you've got three comparisons. I've got, okay, can I reduce my rate? Then I have that reduced rate with the product that yields higher than my reduced rate without then I have some certainty essentially that that product's actually doing anything because that's one of the things a lot of these products claim that they increase nitrogen uptake. And again, most growers are going to look at the yield side. And on my standpoint, I mean, it's nice to really know that that the way that that product's supposed to work, that it's effectively working. So if it's increasing yield at a lower end rate and over that lower end rate alone, I mean, then I have a little more certainty that's effectively working. So I'd at least do three strips and I would replicate at least four times. Um, if you're replicating, I'd also not just alternate yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Because if you've got an, a general yield gradient in your field where it goes higher and lower from one side to the next, you're going to be biasing it one way or the other. The nice thing with RTK right now, the way most growers are set up, they have a lot of flexibility. And if you do have an inferral setup, one of the things I've been looking at is like a, like a dosatron, which I think some growers have, uh, especially if they're looking at headline applications, that you can actually blend or blend those um, products in the line and turn that on and off. So you could go in, apply some some strips without, and then come back in and fill with if you want, if you wish to do so, and put the product on the rest of the field. But you can skip where you're not just alternating passes, just just you do comparisons and kind of randomize where those are at. And it gives you more power. Uh, the big thing I know a lot from it, where it gets to be a little bit daunting is on the statistical analysis side. And there are ways you can get around doing that. I mean, certainly if you've got a large number of growers that if you want to get some analysis, I'm more than willing to work with you on the analysis side. I mean, you can even code things where I don't even know what the treatments are and I can send you the data back. 
just to give you a general handle, because that's really the key, because you just can't use yield averages, because one of the things, if you look at any of our data from non-responsive data, you can't expect non-responsive data that all your treatments are going to have the same yield across the board. What non-responsive data looks like is there's just the yield is sometimes higher, sometimes lower. Generally, the average across is going to be about the same, but it isn't that you're going to see each treatment have the same yield across the board. And I think a lot of growers will look at that if you get a two bushel di difference in there, they'll think that that's significant. A lot of times, if you look at your variability in your reps, that's really what our statistics looks like and gives us overall certainty that we're making the right decision. So, I mean, it's complicated. I know a lot of growers don't want to look at it, but I think it's an important step. And that's one of the things, if you can get together, you know, if you've got a consultant group that wants to work and get a number of growers together, really the power in a lot of this is, is the more sites you get, the better off you're going to be, because then you can start looking at the probability that the product works. And then you might be able to tease out maybe situations where it works better than others. Because that's the thing is that you're just not going to find these things work hundred percent of the time. And I don't care what any company says that their product works 90, 95% of the time. You look at it, I just, you got to kind of dig into a little bit and what they claim in terms of how that product's working, because if it's not, again, decreasing the amount of nitrogen, you need to get the same amount of yield. To me, that that doesn't mean that, the, I don't care if it gives you a little bit of uptake early in the growing season or some end of the season measurements are different versus other. It's really that yield that pays the bills and that's the, the data you need. Yeah, I'll, I'll just kind of second what Dan said. That was a good explanation. And you will, you, even if you set up strips in your field and don't do anything, you'll see yield differences with those strips. So that's why you need to do replication and you need to do with and without. And also, as Dan said, it's really important if you're going to reduce the amount of N on the, uh, the with the biostimulant, you also need to reduce the amount of N without the biostimulant to make sure that you can compare apples to apples. And so it, it's really important to have the right comparisons in there. So a minimum of three treatments, as Dan said, is important. So your conventional, a reduced end, and then a reduced end with your biostimulant, if that's the way you're going. Yeah, and I think, you know, also trying to keep as many other factors the same as you can, you know, so you can really test just the effect of that product. And, you know, that may go without saying, but, you know, you don't want to have it on part of the field that maybe had corn in the last year and then part of the field that might have soybean, you know, in the previous year. You want to keep things consistent, even sometimes different soil types, you know, running through the field can cause a difference. And, you know, these are all things that when we're designing a trial at the university system, we're trying to kind of keep as simple as possible. But, um, but I know it's also kind of hard to, hard to think of everything, but, you know, if you think of as much as you can, that just kind of in increases the chances that, that you'll be able to, you know, feel confident in, in your results and in your design. Well, one of the things that I think Carl brought up, I think is key. I mean, if these products are supposed to increase nutrient availability, you cannot over apply your nutrients. So with nitrogen, I mean, if you're over applying your nitrogen, these things aren't going to give you a yield bump. I mean, that's not the way they're, they're made. So if you're looking at something that's so, supposed to supply a portion of your inorganic nitrogen, you have to really look at your testing at a reduced rate. I mean, it has to be less than an optimal level to get a difference. You know, zero may not be the best um, because sometimes, you know, you may not see a good result, but um, if you're doing it, um, just don't over apply it. So what I'd look at is like what we recommend for our MRTN. 
and just try to stick at that or less. Um, if you're going to do a testing, you know, no matter whether where your your standard rate is, because you know more often than not, at least you'd be in hopefully in a responsive range of that nitrogen response curve. Particularly for a nitrogen um, study, that's really important because as we get closer to that upper end, I mean, it, you're not getting much of a yield increase per pound of N applied anymore. So it really gets to be hard to test things. So that's the thing. Just if you're looking at it, you have to look at a suboptimal rate or you know some way that are new, or the nutrient you're looking at is limiting. Otherwise, it really isn't worth your time to try to test these things. Any last words from the group? So I want to bring a plug up for this NCRA 103 group. Um, we do have a new website. Um, if you go, it's NCERA. 103.org. So that's the new website to get into the, um, the compendium of non-traditional products. So again, if you're looking at that, it's always good to know the active ingredient or what's in your product. Because a lot of times you can search for that active ingredient and, and find some research on it. Because what we've seen, particularly with some of these products, is there tends to be a changeover in the names. Every once in a while, they tend to reinvent themselves with a new uh, trade name but the active ingredients are about the same. So you can kind of look at it, just see what's in there and just see what, particularly with the active ingredients, if you know what that is, um, what research is out there. So that's one thing that, that's resource that's out there that's kind of nice to have. I know uh, also on these biologicals, Matt Ruark at Wisconsin had some handouts he developed talking about a few of these different bacteria. So if you want to look at that too, um, I don't have the, the website ahead in, in front of me, but um, I know he had uh, some really good handouts produced that um, had some of that, and some of that might be in the compendium. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if that actually got put in. So those are some resources if you really have some questions or just contact any one of us and, you know, we might be able to point you towards if you've got any questions on certain products, so whether or not we, we know if there's entry information locally. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would say is don't rely on testimonials. Make sure that you, uh, make decisions on sound research, which is usually going to be conducted at the university. And uh, yeah, I think um, going from there, just be cautious because uh, in most cases, there's no silver bullet. Yeah, just keep in mind that your money is valuable. And even though nitrate, as Dan mentioned before, even as nitrate costs are increasing, these products um, might not necessarily save you money in the long run, especially if they don't work as well as just the nitrogen rate itself. All right, that about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, or AFREC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>